welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the Old Testament book of the minor prophet Zechariah. The book of Zechariah contains more visions and prophecies regarding Christ and the end times than all the rest of the minor prophets combined. The role of the prophet was to tell God's people what God thinks about them and what they are doing or not doing. God cares about his people and he cares about everything in their lives. The book of Zechariah reminds us of God's constant thoughts and teaches us about his plans for the future so that we have hope when we need it. So grab a cup of coffee, open your Bible to the book of Zechariah as we look for Christ in the Old Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 5, Zechariah chapter 5 as we move through this uh, interesting book in the Old Testament. As we, as we go through life, we will come across different things that, um, that as we, especially as we grow up and mature, we start to really not even really notice or take, take really, we don't really see them so clearly anymore, but if you see a yellow triangular sign, what is it saying to you? It's a warning. You know, it's what it is. It's, it's a warning. It, matter of fact, universal symbol, if you see a yellow triangular sign, it's a warning of something. And, and if you encounter a warning sign, you have a choice, right? You have a choice of looking at that sign, understanding what it's communicating, warning, you know, you know, trip has slippery floor, warning, you know, if you take another step further, you're going to be, you're going to burst into flames, whatever it is, there's a sign that says, okay, if, if, if you don't listen to me, something bad's going to happen. And we have a choice. You either, you either look at that sign, acknowledge what it says, and then, and then avoid whatever danger, whatever thing it's doing, or you ignore the sign right? Isn't that the other option? Ignoring that sign and taking the risk of whatever it might be warning you against. Warnings are important. Warnings come regularly. I had a personal experience with that this week. So I had lunch with a guy. And as the waitress was bringing our lunch on the plates, she said, these plates are very hot. Right? And, and what, what is she implying? What is she saying to us? Don't touch them. So here's what Rick's brain thought. I wonder if she's telling me the truth. <laughs> and the other side of me was saying, I don't think she knows how tough I am. So guess what Rick did? Rick touched the plate. And guess what? It was very hot. Warnings like the one the waitress gave us, they are intended to protect. They're intended to keep us safe or, or to keep us someplace, but it's, it's intended to keep us someplace good. She wasn't trying to deprive me of my freedom. You know, like, oh, you know, if you, if you touch this plate, you're, you know, whatever. Like, you know, I'm, I'm trying to take away something from you. She wasn't trying to do that. She was trying to improve my dining experience by preventing me from eating my burrito with a burned finger. The pain of that. She was trying to prevent me from experiencing the pain that came with touching that. I, I, I have no blisters. I'm okay. All right. Don't have to pray for Rick's finger. I'm okay. She wanted me to have a good meal. And here, as we're looking at Zechariah, Zechariah is one of the Old Testament prophets. And one of the roles of the prophet, one of many, but one of the roles was to communicate to the people of God, specifically to the people of God, two things, God's promises and God's warnings. And they're connected. God's promises and warnings go together. It's important to understand that. And when we read about the judgments that God is, is going to send upon his people, it was meant to warn them 
away from danger, away from the danger, sometimes the, the danger they were running after, racing towards. And he's trying to prevent them from going there because there was something on the, other on the other side of that line that God told them not to cross. There was something on the other side of that line that would bring pain and suffering. I have no idea what's going on out there. If somebody is not listening to the warnings, obviously. Wow. It's a New Testament book of Revelation is an example of that. You know, most of Revelation... Wow. Somebody needs to be in church. Somebody go tell that person to come to church. Thank you, Larry. That most of Revelation deals with terrible judgments. I mean, if you can read the book of Revelation without being freaked out by some of it, you, you don't get it. It's terrible stuff that God has got in store in the future, and it's coming. It will happen. It's not a maybe. It's not, you know, you know, you know, it would be nice if everybody, you know, wouldn't go this way so that we don't have to do this. No, God's made it very clear. All of this stuff will happen because he's made it very clear. And then we know the world is not going to respond. Most of the world is going to, going to disregard God's warnings and they're racing headlong toward what's coming. God is going to pour out his judgment upon this wicked, God-hating, Christ-rejecting world. He's going to. Now, why would God warn us of those things in advance? So that we wouldn't go there. So that some won't go there. Yeah. Anybody smell burning rubber? <laughs> Nothing like a little distraction just to, you know, to warm things up. God wants us to avoid the danger. God says, there's things coming, and I don't want you to go there. I don't want you to experience this. And so if God warns us and says, I don't want you to do that, that means we can't avoid it. We don't have to experience those things. But if we do experience them, it also says something else. It says, that's what we chose. Those people that will, that will experience the consequences of rejecting God's warnings are choosing those consequences. Neglecting or rejecting God's warnings exposes people to the consequences of disobeying God and deprives them of the exceedingly great and precious promises of God. I mean, there's two things. There's warnings and promises. Which one do you think God wants us to experience? The promises. And so he gives us the warnings so that we can always experience the promises. Let's pray, and then we'll look at the next two visions of Zechariah's book. Heavenly Father, we do come before you, and before we get into the message, Lord, we just want to lift up Megan's family. Lord, she's with you right now, and, and for her, that's amazing, that's awesome. That's glory, that's, that's peace, that's, that's everything good that, that every believer hopes for and longs for. But for her family, her young children, for Jamie and, and, and David and, and their kids Lord, and the rest of the family, this is hard. And, and it's supposed to be hard. And so we pray for comfort for them and peace that, that in this that they would see you and know you as never before. And I pray, Lord, for God's people to surround them with love, with support, and whatever they're going to need as they make this transition into this, into this new time in their lives. Lord, we do lift up this message to you, and, and we thank you for your promises, Lord. What a glorious thing. What an amazing thing it is that you've made promises to your people. You've made promises to the whole world, but only those that will truly experience them are those that choose you. And so we thank you, Lord, as we sit here as your people those sitting here, those watching online, those who will watch this in the future, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to see clearly your warnings so that we might experience your, your promises more fully. We praise you and love you in Jesus' name. Amen.
In chapter 5, where we are, we're going to look at the sixth and seventh visions of eight visions that Zechariah gets right at the very beginning. And we'll look at the very first one, Zechariah chapter 5, verse 1. Then I turned and raised my eyes, and there saw a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? So I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width is 10 cubits. Anybody have a tape measure that measures in cubits? No. Um, a cubit is a, roughly 18 inches. So, he, so Zachariah sees this scroll, and, it, and the, the idea of it's kind of floating like a banner, and it's roughly 30 feet by 15 feet. Pretty big. And the writing on both sides. <clears throat> Verse 3. Then he said to me, and, and the he there in this, in the context, is the angel that's been speaking to Zechariah. This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief shall be expelled according to this side of the scroll, and every perjurer shall be expelled according to that side of it. I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in the midst of his house and, it, and consume it with its timber and stones. So this scroll describes curses that are directed at two types of people, thieves and perjurers. Now, a perjurer we're gonna, we saw also later, is it's somebody who swears falsely using God's name. So somebody who makes a vow or an oath or something, and they're doing it falsely. They're basically lying and bringing God's name into it. You know, God doesn't think very highly of that. Matter of fact, it's bad enough that he will curse them for it. Now, the things we need to remind ourselves about God so that we can understand the idea of God cursing people, right? I mean, there's a, almost a, a natural kind of drawing back to the idea of God cursing people. I mean, we want to think of God as God, God of love, and, you know, and the God of peace. You know, we have all these ideas, and, and, and they're all true. God is the God of love, and he is the God of peace. But they're very clearly, he describes the idea that if you oppose God, if you, if you resist God, if you, if you rebel against God, if you disobey God, there's a consequence. And the Bible refers to that consequence in many places as a curse. But why, what do we need to know about God so that we understand this? First, we need to understand that God is holy. How holy? Perfectly holy. Everything that God thinks, says, feels, or does is perfectly holy. Thinks, says, feels, or does. Perfectly holy. Then, uh, uh, Pastor Jeffrey said it, that, that we are made in the image of God, right? We've talk, we talk about that a lot. Made in the image of God. Why? So that we can reflect the nature of God out to the world. That's why we are made in the image of God, so the rest of the world can see God through us. And, and if we reflect the nature of God, then the way that we think and speak and feel and do should be what? Holy. How holy? As holy as God. Ooh, wait a minute. Troy, did you do that this week? Yeah, I'm going to say no. <laughs> you don't need to confess it. I know. You're trying. You're trying. Any time, any time that we think or speak or feel or do anything in a way that is not as holy as God, God has a name for that. He calls it sin. We as humans, we have this nature that's inclined to do and to think and to say and to feel things that are not like God, not as holy as God. And we like to, we like to evaluate it and say, you know what, if, as, long as, I'm, as long as I'm better than Troy, I'm going to be okay. Sorry, you're sitting up front, you get to be my, my object today. 
I can't pick on Kelly, right? That would be, that'd be totally wrong. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, as long as I'm better than him. No, that's not, the, that's, not the, that's not the way we're measured. We're not measured compared to each other. We're measured compared to God. We have this nature that's inclined not to do it God's ways. And, the, and, and finally, God's holiness demands justice. Demands it. I mean, the, uh, gosh, I can go on a huge tirade about how, how far our culture has moved away from the idea of justice. We are, we are so far away from the idea of justice that you can hardly find justice in this world today, especially, especially from the people who are screaming and, and burning down cities calling for justice. They're the worst ones. All sin. Anytime we, we think or speak or feel or do something that's contrary to God's perfect holiness, there's a, God calls that sin, and that sin incurs a debt with God. A debt that, that cannot be paid even with your whole life. It, it could not be paid. And, and because it can't be paid, you know, God says something's got to happen. It would be unjust and unholy for God to not punish sin. It would, be, it would be absolutely wrong. God couldn't be God and let sin go unpunished. He couldn't be holy. He couldn't be just. He couldn't be love. He couldn't be any of the things the Bible describes if he didn't deal with sin. Because God is holy, and because he is love, because he is all of the things the Bible says he is, he makes a way for us to be right with him so that we don't have to be punished for our sin. And we know that way is a person, and the person of Jesus Christ. In John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through Christ, through faith in Christ. All of our sins can be forgiven. One of my favorite verses, and I say that every time I quote a verse, one of my favorite verses is in Colossians 2, the picture of this. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 is, is, is we all know that we've sinned, all of us. Every single human on earth knows that they've sinned. Even if they don't understand it, they know just intuitively, in, it's, it's in their nature, they know they're not perfect. And something's got to happen with all of that stuff. And when we, when we believe in Christ, the Bible says that Jesus did something with all of our stuff. All that stuff we've done, all the wrong we've ever done and collected and, and stored up for ourselves, he did something with it. He took it to the cross. Colossians 2.13, you being dead in your trespasses. Who is you? You. Now, I, I, you know, I'm a big believer in marking up your Bible. This is a great one. Everywhere it says you and your, you ought to circle in your Bible in this particular verse, not all of them, but this verse for sure, draw a line out to the margin and write your name. This was for you. You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him. He and him there is Christ. Having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, meaning all of, the, all of the, the rightly described things that you did wrong. You know, God knows every wrong thing that we've ever done. And it was written down in a book. Every last one of them was recorded, even before they happened. <laughs> there was a radical thought. Written down. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Oh, I love that image. The image that, that whatever we've done wrong, when we believe in Jesus Christ, literally, we can imagine the cross of Christ and our sins nailed right there and his blood washing over it. 
and wiping it away. As Christians, we, we claim to be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the consequences, from the debt of the sin that we've incurred with God. All of the handwriting, all of that stuff we've done. I've been saved from all of that. I've also been saved to something. That's another message. But it's by faith in Jesus, God cancels our debt of sin. That there's no consequence, that, that eternal consequence, that, that, that thing that could have happened, should have happened to every last one of us is gone, never to be concerned about again, never to be thought of again. And then, and then once that debt is canceled, once, once we have our debt canceled by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, then we are free to experience the promises of God. Are there promises that God has made to his people? Yes. Do they apply to you personally? Somebody say it like you believe it. Come on. Yes. Which ones? All of them. All of them. Every single promise that God made to his people are made to you. And the Bible talks about the curses of God it is referring to the consequences of rejecting God's glorious forgiveness of sins. If you reject God's forgiveness, there's only one thing left, and that's judgment. In our text here, two sins are singled out stealing and swearing falsely. And, and, and as I was doing my studies this week, my, my first thought was, why these two? I mean, I mean, is that all they were doing? And so, you know, that's you know, the kind of thing when I would do the Bible study class, that's what we always talk about. First, ask questions, ask good questions. Why those two sins? Well, there's an answer. Remember that Zechariah is speaking to the people of God, specifically to the people of God living in Jerusalem and the surrounding area of Judah. They are, they are recently back from uh, captivity in Babylon. They've been back for less than 20 years. And it, it's tough to, it, it was a tough place. You know, the, you know, Jerusalem had laid desolate for 70 years. It was a mess. And they were coming back in trying to rebuild, trying to rebuild the temple, trying to rebuild their homes. All this is going on. It's not going great. There's not a lot of them. And so it's a hard time. And they're experiencing difficult times. The first five, chap the first five visions that God gave Zechariah were in to encourage them in that. And then the, the, the second two focus on the, you know, dealing with the sin in our lives. And here in these, what we see in this, and we see it pictured both in the scroll, the two-sided scroll, and in these two sins are the two tablets of stone that are the commandments, the, the, the ten commandments. Ten commandments, they were in two parts. One tablet had the first four commandments, and, and, and those commandments were focused on God and the nature of God and relating to God. The second tablet, six, the last six commandments, focused on man and man together. You know, the relationship man versus, with man. Stealing, while all sin is a sin against God. Okay, we'll accept that reality. But specifically as it relates to the commandments, stealing was a sin of people against people. Swearing falsely was a sin against God. And so the symbolism here in this is that the, by choosing these two sins, he's addressing both tablets of stone <clears throat> and basically saying that they've broken the whole, the whole law, the commandments, because the Bible says if you break one commandment, you've broken the whole law. James says that in James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. So you may not, you may not, you know, you may not steal, but maybe you lie. According to God, that's breaking the whole law. God doesn't say, okay, as long as you get like six out of ten, you're okay. Doesn't say that. He's calling us to be holy. What is holy? Perfect. 
And one of the things the law teaches us is you can't do that. No one can. And we all need someone to save us from our weakness, from our failures, from our mistakes, from our wrongs, from our sin, whatever you want to call it. We need someone to save us from it because you can't be perfect. No one can. God is warning them that there is destruction ahead. That if they keep going down here, it's going to be a little worse than a burnt finger at lunch. And we need to understand that that when he calls out these thieves and perjurers, he's not calling out the people that just make a mistake. You know, in the weakness of their flesh, we do things that we shouldn't do. Things that we know God doesn't approve of. We're not, we're not intentional, we're not, we're not habitual about these things, but we, we make mistakes. All of us do. That's not who this is directed at. This is directed at the hard-hearted, those whose conscience is seared by sin so much that it doesn't bother them that they're doing it. There's something going on in our culture that just sickens me to think about. Parents and doctors and hospitals giving poisonous, life-altering drug and hormone treatments to children who are confused about their gender. It is horrific. And especially those who are butchering those confused children with what they're calling gender-affirming surgeries, which has got to be the worst misnomer I've ever heard. They're not gender-affirming, they're gender-disaffirming. It's child abuse. It's the worst kind of child abuse, and it literally, it, it really makes me mad. Listen, I, I, if you know me, I'm the kind of person, I lean toward grace. I look at people and I say, you know what? If they're doing that, there's a good chance it's because they're deceived. It's because they just don't understand. It's because they're lost. I can think of all kinds of reasons to justify why they're doing what they're doing. And I I want to express grace to them. And I want to see God do a radical work in them. But there's sometimes I'm looking at some of these things. And I wish that fire and brimstone falling down from heaven happened a little more often. It's probably not nice. And if it doesn't happen, it's because God doesn't want it to happen. But man, judgment's coming. And you cannot, you cannot, you cannot disregard, disregard God's warnings indefinitely. There's a point where the consequence of disregarding God's warnings is going to happen. This sixth prophecy is both a warning and a promise. And and many, many times when we come to things like this, we need to understand that this is true. Anytime you see a warning in Scripture, you you need to try to connect that to one of God's promises because there's always a connection point. There's always a way to understand this is in connection to something that God has promised and he's warning us so that we don't miss the promise. It's a warning. It's a warning that there is a price for sin. There is a price. If you continue down this pathway, that there is a consequence to that because God, God's desire is that, that all would turn from their sin and turn to him, right? Isn't that God's desire for all of humanity? Even the people are doing the most heinous things. He wants them to turn. He is ready to forgive them. I love that. People that I would say, you know what? I think fire and brimstone would be the right thing right now. God says, yeah, but they may repent. And if they do, I'm going to forgive them. Wow, he is a good God. There's a price for sin. There's also a promise to those who are seeking to be holy in an unholy culture. As we look around and we see the wickedness and we see all these terrible things going on around us, we need to know God sees it too. And that he has a plan. 
And, there, and, that, and those who deserve justice and judgment, either or, are going to get it. And we don't have to be the ones that do it. We don't have to worry about it. God has got it all under control. You know what we need to do? What he tells us to do. Whatever he tells us to do, that's what we do. Seventh vision. Seventh vision is interesting. It's got some unusual stuff in it. Let's go ahead and read it. Verse 5, Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what is this that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? What is it? And he said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is their resemblance throughout the earth. Meaning, basically meaning this is what's going on everywhere is what he's saying there. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. So there's a lot of symbolism in there. Some of the symbolism is a little unclear, like the symbolism of the basket and the lead cover. You know, with all of that, you know, we, could, we could make some assumptions there. What's important is the woman, the woman named wickedness. Now, it's a little unclear why wickedness is described as a woman. You know, the, the word is in the feminine, so that may be part of it. But we also see a connection in Revelation chapter 4, 17 of the great harlot. The great harlot is described in, in Revelation 17, and we recognize her. We understand that it's symbolizing godless religion. And so all of godless religion is collected and, and, and pictured as a great harlot or great prostitute. In the book of Hosea, another one of the minor prophets, Israel is depicted as an unfaithful wife to God. And so there's this picture here between God's people and God where God is, in essence, the husband and his people are the wife, the relationship there. And he's calling God, you know, God's calling his people to be faithful. It just says, as you would call a wife to be faithful to her husband, he would call his people to be faithful to him. And so he's, he's dealing with this, this reality that the people as a whole, because when you, when you refer to the God's people that way, he's talking about all of them, kind of as an as a aggregate of all of God's people, that, you know, that all of them have, you know, basically kind of given themselves over to wickedness. The sixth vision was focused on individual people. The seventh vision is focused on the people, collectively. <clears throat> and and the, this, this woman, wickedness, has to be thrust down into the basket. You know, what that says to us is she wants out. And that is, that is sin and wickedness. The nature of it is to spread and expand and move outward. If you don't deal with it, if you don't shove it back into the basket and put the lead cover on it, if you don't force it into place, it will come out. And the same thing is true in our hearts. That there, 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 there is always something inside of us that has this tendency to move away from God. And we have to be careful. The Israelites in our account here they're back in the land after they've been exiled for 70 years, which was the fulfillment of a curse that God had told them. If you, if you continue practicing, especially this, the sins of idolatry, it's going to come a point where you have to experience the curse, and the curse is you get kicked out of the land. And he did it. For 70 years, he kicked them out. Interestingly, that when they got back, Idolatry was not one of the sins they committed. You don't really see idolatry as, as one of their national sins anymore. But God expected them. He brought them into, in, in Zechariah 2.12, he referred to the nation of Israel as the Holy Land. If you remember that, the only place you see it in Scripture is Zechariah 2.12. Uh, and it says, The Lord will take possession of Judah as an inheritance in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Now let me ask you a question. What kind of people should be living in the holy land. I kind of gave you a clue there. What, what is he looking for in his people? Holiness, right? I mean, if it's the holy land, the people should be 
holy. How holy? As holy as God. As holy as God is. Never be satisfied with how holy you are. Never be satisfied. Never. Always be striving for a deeper commitment to God, a more, I mean, a more pure relationship with him. Always be striving for a deeper and, 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 and greater understanding of who he is, for a, a more consistent obedience to him and his word. That's what God looks for in his people. When God called Abraham... He set the Jews apart from the rest of the world, not to be like them, different from them, unique. In fact, the word that's used is peculiar. We don't like that word, but that's the word that's used. Be peculiar, not weird. Weird is not good. (laughs) The reality is God will not overlook sin forever. He won't overlook it. He's patient incredibly patient but he's not going to overlook it forever verse 9 then i raised my eyes and looked and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings for they had wings like the wings of a stork and they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven so i said to the angel who talked with me where are they carrying the basket and he said to me to build a house for it in the land of shinar When it is ready, the basket will be set there on its base. The seventh vision is a warning that God considers the Holy Land holy. And his desire for the people in the Holy Land is that they would be holy. And the warning is, if you're not holy, what's going to happen? Boop, kicked out again. And we know that happened. It will be a few hundred years after this prophecy is given, but in 70 AD, they would be kicked out of the land again, dispersed out of the land again, except this time it wasn't for 70 years. It was for almost two millennia, 1,900 years they were out of the land. Now, we praise God that they're back in the land again today, and we pray for their holiness, as we should. Are they a holy people now? They're no more holy than most people anywhere else. But God did what he said. God always does what he says. This basket is carried by these two winged women, another peculiar thing about this particular prophecy, to Shinar. Shinar is ancient goes all the way back to Genesis 10 and 11. It was the the location of where the Tower of Babel was built. It was also later um, identified with Babylon, which where they had just gotten back from 70 years of exile. And so it's the idea of going back into this place of exile. God's land is holy. God expects the people living in the land to be holy. To live, living these, these holy lives by faith, trusting in God and God alone. And if they wouldn't do it, after God warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them for hundreds of years, there was going to be a consequence. Now, the New Testament has similar warnings. You know, it's not just the Jews that God warned about being holy. Matter of fact, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament telling us, be holy for I am holy. Be holy as holy as I am, God would say to his people. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're one of his people, and he's calling you to be holy. Expects his people, Jews and Christians alike, be holy. To the church of Ephesus, Jesus said in Revelation 2, 4, and 5, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Who is he talking to? The church. Telling the church to repent. And brothers and sisters, that's a message the church needs to hear today. 
not just Christians, whole churches need to repent because they have lost their way. If you don't, I'll remove your lampstand. And that's a warning. I will take you out, is what God's saying. And to the Laodiceans, Jesus said in Revelation 3, 15 and 16, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God doesn't like churches that, are, that need to repent. And not that he doesn't like them, but he has a problem with them. The same thing with Christian. As Christians, we need, as individual believers, we need to recognize God's calling us to faith, true faith. The Bible, Old and New Testament, filled with warnings and promises. The promises are the fruit of the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And they are promised to every believer. Every believer has every promise that God has made to the, to the church. Every one. Every believer, young, old, novice, experienced, pick a description, some, some classification, whatever you want to do, every single promise is applied to every single Christian. And the warnings are the boundaries of faith. They tell us where the edges are. They tell us where, where we can go, where we can't go to experience, where we, where we can or cannot experience the promises. Neglecting one of the warnings. Here's the king. Neglecting one of the warnings, crossing the boundary of faith means separating ourselves from the promises. Just taking ourselves out of that place where the promises are fulfilled. It also exposes us to the curses. If, you were, if you're to walk into a, a restaurant and you see a sign, wet floor, a lot of restaurant illustrations, I wonder why. You see a sign, wet floor, it's a warning, right? You know, what, what, what's the warning out? If you keep going, if you go in this area, you might slip and fall, and instead of having a nice lunch, you're off to the emergency room, right? And miss your, miss your lunch. You know, I, I ignored the warning of the waitress and, you know, got, you know, didn't burn my finger, but I, re, I was reminded, you know, that plate's hot. The best life that we can live. I mean, who wants to, anybody want to live a good life? You know where it is? Right in the center of God's promises. If, if you are where God's promises exist, that's the best life you can live. And the warnings are given to us so that we know when we're getting close to the edge, we're getting away from God's promises. We're getting to that place where we might not experience God's promises. Eve, you know, we always like to go back, Eve, she kind of messed it up for all of us, though all of us would have done the same thing in her place. She had been warned. God warned her. God warned Adam and Eve, said, hey, there's a huge garden, Eat anything you want, as much as you want, anytime you want. Complete freedom to enjoy the fullness of this lush garden. But one tree, stay away from it. What was the warning? If you eat of it, you will surely die. That was the warning. There was a line around that tree, figuratively. And that line was, do not eat, because there's a consequence attached to crossing that line. They can go right up to it. They can look at it. They can smell it. They can admire it. They can do all of that. Don't cross the line. We know. We know what happened. Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. She saw it. She admired it. She liked it. She got as close to the line as she possibly could, and, the, and, and she got a little bit of temptation and stepped right over. 
the closer you are to the warnings, closer you are to the lines that God has put in our lives to protect us from missing the promises of God, the, the closer you live to those lines, the easier it is to be tempted across them. God's warnings are not there to keep us from something good. They are to keep us in something good. His promises God's promises are good. God's promises are great. God's promises are amazing. And he wants us to stay right in the middle of them to experience the fullness of all of it, to experience all of the garden that God has set before us, every single promise, to enjoy it as much as you possibly can, as much as you want. Enjoy all of the promises you can. Just stay away from the edges. Stay away from those lines that we've drawn. And the closer you live to those lines, the easier it is to cross over and then to move out of God's promises and into the curse. There's always a consequence. When we make those choices to cross those lines, to not pay attention, to not heed God's warnings, there's always a consequence. Now, because we're believers, we don't experience the eternal consequence but there's a temporal consequence that's attached to it as well. Like me touching that, that plate. There's a temporal consequence. I'm going to close with one of my favorite verses. 2 Peter 1, 3, and 4. His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Because you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have all things for life and godliness. All things. How much is all things? Everything. I mean, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing denied from us. There's nothing we're missing, right? Which makes, which makes temptation that much more wicked, right? If you already have all things, what are, you be, what are you being tempted toward? It can't be more. You already have all. If you're tempted to, to cross the line that God has warned us about, it's, you're not going to get more. You can't. You already have all. And so if you cross that line, you only can have less or worse or none. His divine power is given to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given, past tense, to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Listen, when God put Adam and Eve in the garden, it was, it was so that they could commune with him and fellowship with him and experience all of the blessings of that, all of the, all of the good that came with that. And we as believers, when we, when we, when we, choose to live within the promises of God, we get as close as you can in this life to getting back to that place where we commune with God and we know all of his blessings, all of the joy and the peace and the hope and everything else that's attached to communing with God are found in his presence in the promises that he made to us. Heed God's warnings. Do it for your own good and for his glory. And through faith in Christ and obedience to God and his word, we can live in his promises. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come and we thank you for this day. We ask for your blessing on all that we do from here. And Lord, again, I want to I thank and, and, and lift up Pastor Jeffrey and his team. What a blessing they were to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to use them for your glory and the blessing of God's people. And pray, Lord, that as we go out from this place, we do so recognizing that, that you have given to us great, exceedingly great and precious promises. And if we will choose to live in those promises and to heed your warnings, that we can live the best life possible. But Lord, Lord, we're surrounded by temptations, surrounded by temptations to go after something that looks good or sounds good or might taste good or might make us feel good. But if, it, if, it's, if, it's, if we're warned against it, it, it can never do what it looks like it will. 
And so I pray, Lord, that we would be strong in faith, that we would live in the center of your promise, that we obey you and your word. When we see a warning, we, we acknowledge the truth it is for each one of us, and we stay away from it. Lord, that we choose to live in the center of your promises and not on the edge near the lines that you've put around us, that you've promised us good. And you're not trying to keep any good from us. Matter of fact, you're trying to keep us in the good and away from the bad, away from the wicked, away from the evil, away from the sin that, that so easily entangles us. And so I pray for strength for your people. I pray for wisdom and discernment. I pray for the communion of the saints that helps us to stay in your promises. And I pray, Lord God, for an anointing over all of those who are called to lead others to you, Lord, that they would do so with great power and influence. And Lord, as we prepare to close this time, we do lift up. If anyone is here and they do not have a real relationship with you, that you would minister to their hearts and help them to ask the question, to answer the question, if if today was my day to go be with you, if my day, it was my day to leave this earth, would I go to be with you? And Lord, as believers, we can know that with absolute certainty. The answer is yes. And if you can't answer that, if you can't answer that question, yes, then you need to humble your heart before God, repent of your sins, and ask him to bring you into a real relationship with him. Lord God, we thank you for everything you do in our lives and we ask your blessing on the rest of our lives and the rest of this day that we might go forth and glorify you, bless others, and grow in faith. Help us to heed the warnings and live in the center of your promises. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. God bless you all. Go find someplace cool to spend the rest of the day. God bless you. Have a radical week in Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us on this exciting journey through the book of Zechariah. It is our hope that these messages will help you to grow in your faith. If there's anything that we can do to help you with that, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can do that by going to calvaryfv.com connect and you'll find all the ways that you can connect with us there. As Christians, we are all connected in Christ. And one of the ways that we would like to engage with you is in the area of prayer. Please let us know how we can be praying for you. You can send us an email to prayer at calvaryfv.com or text the word pray to 951-419-5396. If this material has been useful to you, please share it with someone. Also, please pray that God would use these messages to help others find hope in Jesus Christ. You can also partner with us financially by going to calvaryfv.com give or text the word give to 951-419-5396. Until next time, go be radical with Jesus.